have a dream that all men are created equal. Hey everyone, welcome back to your story. I'm Ian Kath, and this is episode 38. Thunder two weeks before I leave for Buenos Aires. I'm going there, as I've told you before, to do a little bit of tango, but also to track down some episodes and show you a little bit of the culture is up. That is Argentina. I don't know much about Argentina. I don't know much about Buenos Aires. I don't know much about any of that stuff. So I'm going over there to do a bit of an explore and see what I can dig up. I've actually heard it's a tremendous city, so... A little bit run down, but it's a very, very European city, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it and seeing what I experience. And I'd like some leads. If you know of anything, any advice you'd like to give to me, please send them through. I met a fellow at Tango last night, as a matter of fact, Manuel, who uh, who uh, gave me some wonderful leads, uh, some great cultural information and some places to go and check out, which I look forward to seeing where they develop. Adam in Prague has also given me a couple of leads in regards to the history of the place and sort of things that have been going down especially with the economic crisis back in 2001 and what led on from that so maybe I might be able to find something in regards to that so Adam thanks for those leads I really appreciate it and I have had a bit of, little bit of a contact this week I received an mp3 from Andrea in Bucharest with a little bit of information that she wanted to share with us a few of her thoughts about uh, the episode about swing that I did a couple episodes ago with Lucy and Willie it's a uh, yeah, it was a very long MP3 that she sent through. It was 35 minutes in length, and she actually went on, spoke about a fair bit of the Romanian culture before and after communism. Uh, and I'm just going to share with you a few of the points that she made regarding the episode. Thanks, Andrea, and here it is. Hello, Mr. Ian Kath. This is Andrea Manea with the promised MP3 I understood the difference between polyamory and um, the swingers. That's clear to me. It's uh, no doubt <laughs> I really understood that. Um, and actually, with the swingers, if you ask me, I'm not uh, I'm not that uh, pro. <laughs> I'm not against. I mean, people can do what they want, but I'm not uh, I'm not into it at all. Um, with the polyamory concept, on the other side, it's really really interesting. You went to splitting the word in poly and amori. Actually, I think that is from Latin. Um, and um, you're right, you can love several persons. You can love more than one person, and those persons can be um, women, they, they can be men. It's a different kind of love. And um, I think that's what wasn't that clear into my mind. Thank you for for this uh, this detail you mentioned because it was it was important. Actually, changed a bit um, the way I was thinking the problem and actually made me think more about this concept. Not that I will apply it in my life. I think women in Romania are a bit more uh, classic, you know, like in the Middle Age, like uh, the Renaissance. Uh, you need that perfect love 
101, you know, <laughs> one guy, one girl, and that's it. The rest of you, out. I wish you all the best until then, and uh, keep up with the wonderful show you're, you're making. If you learn Romanian, just apply for a yencat.row and <laughs> do it. And uh, until next time, just have a great, great weekend. And um, I wanna, I wanna live to see the one million episode from Your Story podcast. <laughs> Bye. I really appreciate you doing that for me, Andrea. Uh, it's lovely to hear from people. It's lovely to hear your, your gorgeous accent of yours and uh, have it sort of coming across. I, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Thanks very much. If you want to send something through to me, there's all the usual ways. Remember to go over to the site, yourstorypodcast.com. You can always leave a comment. You can send an MP3 like Andrea did through to me. There are many different ways of doing that. Uh, there's a Dropbox on the side where that she used, which you can just drop stuff into, and that makes it really easy for you to send me a large file if you want to. Or you can just send me an email or you know, all the usual sort of stuff. Yeah, iTunes, you can get the feeds there. Yeah, pop over to the site. There's always a couple of photos. I always make sure I get a couple of snaps up in regards to the episode or maybe a few links relative to the story. And there are a few links in regards to this one because there's a little bit of history that I didn't even know about. And um, so I've had to dig up a few Wikipedia links for you. So uh, if you want to check it out, go for it. And let's not forget Iota Promonet because they always supply the music and I've actually managed to dig up a couple of uh, relative tunes to today's theme because of the lovely Iota. So if you uh, like the music, just go over there and maybe consider buying it. It looks after them. I'm constantly on the lookout for meeting interesting people in everyday life. And that's how I met Bernard, as I'll explain to you in a moment. Today's story is about his experience as an amateur in the excellence of ballroom dancing in the 50s and 60s. And how that eventually led on to him meeting some of the rich and fascinating people while he was working as a hairdresser in the Mediterranean during the 60s. People that we've only ever read about. He also tells us a deeply moving story of, of his soulmate and wife slowly dying of Alzheimer's disease and uh, the deeply moving aspect of having to be a carer and for him moving on afterwards. There is always more in people's lives and right at the end of the conversation Bernard shocked me with <laughs> two uh, wild events where he was abducted and held hostage for a period of time. And uh, in order to understand them, you have to um, go and check out the links on the site to get a bit of background of what he's talking about. Here's Bernard's story. First of May, 2009. Bernard King, welcome to your story. Now, a bit of background. I met you six months ago at Tango. And our teacher, Sandra, said, there's this new fellow who's just started dancing. And he's got a bit of a background and he's doing very, very well. And I went, oh, okay, this will be interesting. And then I met you and I turned around to you and I said, g'day, Bernard. I understand you're a bit of a gun. I understand you're really good. What's your background? You've been doing a bit of dancing, have you? Um, and you said, basically, yeah, a little bit. You're very humble about it. And I said, and I looked at you and you had this wiry grin on your face. And I thought, ah, and I said to you, and I still remember it very clearly. So what, British or international champion? And you said nothing. And I thought, I've got something here. And that's why I've invited you to come on the show. So welcome. 
Thank you very much, and it's very perceptive of you. <laughs> <laughs> so as we explore a bit of your life, and I know there's some many interesting parts, which I've seen just glimmers of in a couple of discussions with you, and that's what I want to explore. Take us back. Where do you come from? What's that rounded lilt in your voice? I actually come from Nottingham in the uh, middle of England. I don't actually speak Nottinghamese. I speak a mixture of all sorts of English that I've picked up in the past. Having lived in the Mediterranean for a couple of years, also that influence, and so consequently I've lost most of my Nottingham accent. So Nottingham, where's Nottingham in the well, British Isles? In the British Isles, Nottingham is right in the middle of the Midlands, about 120 miles north of London. Oh, okay. And the beginning of the black country, and so uh, coal is quite a big thing. Okay. Very industrious. You grew up. What's your training? What's your background? My background, um, I was born actually in a, uh, lived in a place called Beeston Rylands, which was uh, very close to uh, Ericsson's company. At uh, the age of uh, 11, I went to a boys' school, which was a very good boys' school. Not a boarding school. It wasn't a boarding school and not a private school. But it was a school at the time that was experimental. We never had any homework. Oh. But I was quite academic. But this is where um, the path that I've taken changed because of my dance background. What age did you start dancing? I started dancing at the age of six. Okay. So let's let's weave it. It's going to be complicated, but let's weave mm. the two, your career and the dance together, because I imagine they're all interwoven. So you started dancing at six. What sort of dancing at six? Well, my parents, they were 40 years of age when I was born. Okay. As soon as I was old enough to be able to be taken, then they started to take me around. And consequently, they used to like to go dancing. So they sent me to dance school. They had friends who were professional teachers. So I went to a ballroom dance school, and that is where my education in dance started. So you're a six-year-old doing ballroom? I was a six-year-old doing <laughs> ballroom dancing. Okay. And how was that? Does a six, seven, eight, and ten-year-old enjoy ballroom? Well... That's rather a long time to ago to remember. But well, you can sometimes yes, they do it do. because the parents they take They do, because yeah. the point is that you do things, we all do things that parents take us to, yeah. whether it's a father taking you to a football or whether it's swimming or whatever. That's what you do. And my parents took me to dance, but the thing was, was that I hadn't been there very long and they realised that I was actually quite good at this. And so consequently... My dance education then started to take uh, maybe a different sort of turn to what the average child would do. But in the 1950s uh, in England, it was after the war, it was quite a big thing. Uh, ballroom dancing in those days was very fashionable. Uh, the discotheque hadn't yet appeared. No. That music wasn't there. And so consequently... Uh, it was quite a big thing, or did become in a very short number of years, ballroom dancing, and particularly competitive ballroom dancing, started to become quite a thing to do. It was big business. By 1960, it was very big business. What age did you start getting serious? 
There was competition levels for uh, children under 11 years of age and uh, I was fortunate enough to be in the top six in the country as an under 11 year old. It was quite serious by the time I was 10 years of age. Wow. Wow. Okay. And how, how much did your parents support you? Well, my father at that particular time was reasonably affluent. Uh, he was self-made man. He actually built handmade bicycles. That was his trade. Oh, okay. And he made bicycles for all the world champions and, and at that particular time and all sorts of things. And he was fairly affluent, and so consequently the expense of it wasn't a great stress to the family. But it was quite expensive, even as a, uh, a 10 and 11-year-old, because there were a lot of festivals that were around the country which were starting to pop up, and they would last be a week. And so the travelling expenses, the uh, private lessons, and everything else, the costume gear, it wasn't certainly wasn't cheap. As you went through your teen years, you say you're doing school, but you're still dancing as well? Oh, absolutely, because by that time, of course, then I moved into a junior level, which is between the ages of 12 or 11 and uh, 16. And that, again, is another different ball game because the level of that dance is very high, so consequently... The expense skyrockets. And eventually, as I got to uh, be in, again, the top six in the country, my parents got quite a lot of dispensation from school for me because the whole regime of trying to stay in the top six in the country starts to become rather a difficult thing to do. Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, I would be at private lessons and classes. Thursday, I would have to leave school early, and I would probably be in Birmingham. Friday, I would probably be in Manchester. Saturday, I could be in the south of England, and Sunday, I could be in Scotland. (laughs) So (laughs) it was a pretty hectic time. Were there um, financial rewards back in these days for that that age group? Absolutely not, because it's a... And and neither are there still as an amateur... They, you were not allowed to right. earn money. So they still stick by the am- amateur code? Well, as far as I know they do. I mean, all the way through my dancing career they did. And as an amateur, you were not allowed to receive money. However, in major championships, you probably found that there were vouchers that you won. Sure. If you won a voucher for £100, which was a lot of money in those days, that £100 might have been given to your dance school for your private lessons. Mm. Mm. Or, or go towards costumes or, or travel to, expenses. Absolutely, or, or travel expenses. Yeah. But it was never, that wasn't why you were actually there. There was never any thought about financial remuneration. At that age, how far did you get? What was your best? What did you achieve? I was junior world champion, two years running, Gaze with on. a different partner, <laughs> which has never been done since, right. I believe. At what age were you? 15, 16 years of okay. age. Okay, okay. So that takes you out of the junior ranks. Well, so did you continue in? Into the yes, senior? I did, and uh, I continued into the senior, and uh, was destined for a fairly illustrious career in uh, the styles of dancing that I was doing. Ballroom, which is, as you would know, as waltz, foxtrot, quickstep, and Viennese waltz and tango, 
and Latin American. So as a junior, my level was, I was what was the equivalent of a world junior champion in old time. I reached the ranks of fourth in modern and also in Latin American. Right. I, it's very difficult to cross over and the achievement that I had as a junior in all of those there wasn't anybody else doing right. that at all at that particular time. So let's move into the senior ranks. How did you go there? Well, in the senior ranks, that became a different story. I, as I said, I was de- destined for an illustrious career. Uh, but unfortunately, at that particular time, I'd left school. Uh, I decided to do hairdressing as a second string to my bow. Second to dance? Absolutely. Oh, so you were quite serious to dance in a professional level? Well, would be on a professional level, yep. at this level, absolutely. And unfortunately, my father went bust, went <sighs> bankrupt. Bugger. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, there's no money, and or certainly the type of money that was required to keep me at the already level that I would be, mm. because I would have moved into... Uh, the top 24 in the country or top 48 straight away anyway and uh, at that level as your your progression to move forward obviously when you move into a senior level you've got to uh, do your dues you don't just go boom regardless how good you are you've got to bide your time and you've got to wait so the waiting period would probably be for me to get to the level that I would want to be competitive rise would probably have been at 20 years of age or maybe 21. However, there's now no money. I had two options. I certainly could have led a very scrimp and scrape life and not achieve because I couldn't afford it. Or I could, the other option was for me to turn professional. And at the level that I was, that wasn't an issue. I could do that. I was one of, with one of the best schools in the country. I had the support of those people, and that's what I did. So I you went professional. professional. And so my competitive career then comes to an end. Oh, if I'm, you're a professional, you can't compete. Oh, yes, you can p- compete as a professional. Uh, yes, but you can't pr- compete at but that other level. came to an end because I did not have a partner because... The partner that I had did not wish to turn professional. So consequently, I'm now going to have to start to seek out a whole new different ball game. And as a competitor, as a professional, you probably wouldn't compete maybe until certainly you were in your 20s. You can do so if you wish to, but you would have got absolutely nowhere. Right. Politically. Right. Yeah, you pay your dues again. You pay your dues again. Then something happened to me where I was offered a job abroad. By this time, I'm almost a qualified hair oil. I was a, I'd done my apprenticeship, and I was offered a job abroad uh, in quite a nice place. Where, Bernard? Uh, actually, this is quite comical, because I was offered a job abroad in the island of Mallorca, in the very village that Christopher Scase ended oh, up. Seriously? <laughs> Absolutely. In Puerto de Andrach, uh, on the southern part of Mallorca, which is a very illustrious place. Lots of money, lots of uh, aristocracy there, lots of wealthy people. 
uh, all the big boats coming into uh, Puerto de Andrach Harbour. So just working for a salon? Well, or? absolutely. I lived with the, fa- with the Spanish family and uh, they had a hairdressing salon there. All around Puerto de Andrach, very, very beautiful villas, wealthy people and a lot of English aristocracy. They needed somebody that could speak very good English and was good at his job. And understood and bum, the culture bum. and all that sort exactly. of stuff. And, yeah, go and see this young fellow, Bernard. You know, right. He can do your hair well. So we, did I, you continue dancing? No. I decided that I was going to have a break from this. Bear in mind that I'd done this from six years of age. I had not led a normal childhood. I'm seven, 18 years of age and break free, go out into the world and sow my wild oats. And you did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so... Tell us about Mallorca. What, what, what happened there? One of the people that actually came was a client of this particular place was, at that particular time, a very well-known international model. She uh, had a, a villa on, in Mallorca and uh, was married to... Uh, I won't speak any names here because this gets a little bit testy and I don't want to uh, put somebody in a position that, that's not nice. It's all right. It's only between you and I. Oh, okay. <laughs> and half the world probably. No, nobody listens to this, mate. <laughs> so this particular person was married to a British aristocrat. She was actually modelling for a Spanish house, Gabi Couture, who had, through the summer season, showings uh, in the very, very large hotels uh, all around uh, the island of Mallorca, which at that particular time was one of the destinations, holiday destinations of the world. And for instance, one of the big fashion shows that we did, that I was party to, was at the Belva Castle. And the compare to that show was Grace Kelly. And uh, there were seven international houses. It was a big charity event. And of course, that then leads you to meeting other people. As it as would. As it would, and so on and so forth. And so consequently, uh, I did very well. I did quite a bit of work for a few photographers for Vogue magazine and those types of things. So did you do Grace Kelly's hair? And, oh, absolutely not. And I would love to have done that. That would have been absolutely fantastic. But unfortunately, no. But uh, what happened then was, of course this particular person that did the introduction, I started to have an affair with this person. Oh, uh, now I can understand why you're not dropping the name. <laughs> she left her husband and things turned a little bit hairy and we hightailed it to London at the end of the summer season. And I spent then three months, in well, from November to February in London, working for Robert Fielding in Sloan Square which again was a very interesting place to work. By this time you've elevated yourself, you're my head. I mean, I was a young hairdresser that thought he knew everything. And when I look back, I realized that I really didn't know very much at all, but I was quite good at my job and had had a very good education uh, in, head, in, in hairdressing. I happened to decide that I wanted to go back into the Mediterranean and so did Doreen, but things had got nasty. Who's Doreen? Well, this is the person. That, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. And things had got very uncomfortable for her. She'd got small children that she'd left behind, wanted to go back to Mallorca. There was no way in the world that I could go back there. 
the thing was was that a job became or an opening became available in Rome working for Eva Roma who was quite a star in the hairdressing world at that particular time big international staff i sent them a letter applying for work and they actually sent me a telegram back saying uh, if you'd like to come to rome uh, by all means we can't exactly promise you a job but we would like to interview you so i just got on the train and i took the train to rome arrived in rome in italy and walked out of the station and got run over by a bus <laughs> i had 5 pounds in my pocket i was destitute I was run over by a bus. So I finally met somebody who has had the cliche getting run over by a bus. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I didn't speak a word of the language. and But these people, I thought, what am I going to do? I wasn't, I wasn't badly injured, but I was injured enough to go to the hospital. And the only contact I had was the firm that I was going to work for. So what they did was that they paid my bill, they ultimately interviewed me, and I ended up with a job with Eve of Rome. At the time, that was at the time of La Dolce Vita, and where they were situated was on the Via Vittorio Veneto, which at that time was the street in Europe. This is where... Uh, all the movie stars are parading up and down of an evening time. It was at the time when Chinachita, the film studios, was everything was moving from Hollywood to Italy. It was at the time of the spaghetti westerns and Cleopatra and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and all of that time with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. And so, consequently, this house that I'm now working for, right in the middle of it all, boy, was that a place to work. So you just had all of these glitterati flowing through. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And uh, there was a girl working uh, in uh, the Eve of Rome salon, a Swiss girl, who was a brilliant hairdresser. And she had done Jacqueline Kennedy's hair before, or Jackie Anassis, as she's known. And uh, when Jackie was uh, on her papal visit to in Rome, guest of the Spanish embassy, uh, Giselle was obviously going to be doing Jackie's hair because she'd done it before. And I was sent along as helper. Right. So uh, I had the... And I was sent along because at that particular time, I'd done Lee Ratzeville's hair, who was Jackie Hernandez's sister. And so there's a slight connection. And so uh, I went along as aide to do that job. Grace Kelly, Jackie Kennedy. Okay, who else? Um, Come on, do, let's drop some names. Claire Broom uh, in the film from The Spy That Came From The Cold. Uh, other illustrious people that walked in that salon, probably seven crown heads of Europe, uh, Queen Anne Marie of Greece, um, uh, the Principessa Maria Borghese, uh, quite a, a yeah. lot of people. So halcyon days. Yes, but you know, that's not all it's cracked up to be either, Ian. By the time I'd finished, I weighed eight and a half stone and was a mental wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> 
they also did, um, they used to have the Eve of Rome cosmetics in those days were exclusive to the Eve of Rome salons and also to Lloyd and Taylor in New York and Lloyd and Taylor in Dallas in Texas. On the Isle of Capri uh, in the Eve of Rome salon in Cortina di Ampezzo. And for instance, I was sent up to Cortina di Ampezzo to be given an Italian injection and for a gala ball for 2,000 people uh, that was uh, a, a period ball, fancy dress. I worked for 10 days from 6 in the morning till 12 at night doing uh, wigs and postiche and I never want to see one ever again. <laughs> All of that sort of stuff. And also for the fact that uh, we, because of their cosmetics that they sold in, in, in America, they used to have a five-minute program on American television. Every night it went out for five minutes. It was a bit sort of like these days they do a total makeover. But the Eve of Rome Salon did a makeover and it was five minutes every night on the television for a month. And they had a hairdresser and they had a makeup artist and the fashion people to completely make somebody over. So consequently, we used to get these mental Americans flying over to spend a day in the Eve of Rome Salon that expected you to work wonders and ship miracles. And it's not easy to do that. <laughs> We want you to make us look like Jackie Kennedy. Absolutely. Yes, yes. You know, you well, would have... Well, you need to lose 50 kilos... Absolutely. ...and grow three inches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, wow. So I don't think it was the happiest time of my life. I learnt an awful lot. So uh, a lot of people aspire towards the glamour. You know, you know, you get young girls who want to be models, you know, because it seems glamorous. You get lots of people who want to be singers or actors, you know, because it seems glamorous. You've been in the glamour. What's it really like? Well, you know, Ian, one of the things is it's a very lonely life uh, because whilst you're moving up there, uh, everybody wants to know you. They want to rub shoulders with you because you're part and past of this illusion but then when you become number one, let's go back to my dance mm. again. When, and one of the reasons that helped me to able to turn professional was because as number one in the top of your field, then no one wants to know you, Ian. All of a sudden, you are untouchable. You are this thing that they all aspire to, but oh, we aren't there. And they treat you totally different. And in actual fact, it has a very peculiar effect on you. What it sometimes does, it actually does the opposite to what you think it would do. My self-esteem dropped down the bottom of the gurgler because all of a sudden people don't want to know you. Why don't they want to know me? Why don't they want to be with me anymore? So this happened to you in hairdressing? Uh, no, not in hairdressing it didn't. But... Uh, certainly what you're asking is this glamour business. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so so the you, very rich and famous people end up living these solitude lives because none of us want to go there and sit down and have a beer with them because they're untouchable. That's exactly right, I think, and, and, unless it's with their own people. I mean, birds of a feather flock together, and we know that, but none of them are happy because half of these people don't even like themselves. So, you know, it's like I don't think that that's where it wants to be. It... It cured me from having to aspire to 
what was perceived by the general public as the place to be. The place to be is where you feel comfortable. As now, in my years, I'm a hairdresser in Beanley, and the people that come to me, Ian, whether it's some school cleaner, or whether it happens to be someone that's well-known, rich, famous, or whoever she is, it's the same thing, Ian. They get treated the same. That's where I want to be in my life. Here you are in your mid-twenties. What's happened to dance? What's happened to dance? I suddenly realised in Rome, one day, I really don't want to do this anymore. This high life, this uh, great glamorous business isn't so wonderful. And I decided to go back to England. And I went back to England. I went home. And for six months, I stayed and lived with my family. And I started to go back to dance. And so at that time, someone came along that was an ideal partner for me. I started to move into stage and cabaret. And that was also the time with all the nightclubs appearing all over England. Well, had been doing for some time. But the cabaret clubs, it was very fashionable to be running shows in the clubs every night, the cabaret shows. And so I went on to the... I started still teaching, but I also went on the cabaret circuit. And so I was working in cabaret. And did that for quite a number of years. And then I met my wife. The lady who became your wife. The lady who became my wife. You know, in in your time, I'd lived with three other women in my... uh, whilst I was sowing my wild oats, so to speak. But I never, ever had met the love of my life. But all of a sudden, this person came along, quite out of the blue. Was she a dancer? No, not at all. And bowled me over. I asked this person to marry me. I would not go and live with her. In those days, uh, people were living with people. Of course, I had lived with three people before. But this was the person I wanted to spend Mm. the rest of my life with. Mm. And so that's what I did. Okay. So you were doing the dance, uh, professionally dancing. Uh, Were you competing? No. Or competition completely goes? No, competition went completely out of the door. As soon as you start earning money in cabaret or anything like that? Okay. Well, professionals keep compete for money. But it wasn't a place where I wanted to go. So there, there was... You didn't play in the professional competitive field? No, I did not. Okay. I possibly would have done, had I have stayed in dance, I possibly at some stage would have done. But when I met my wife, who was not a dancer, and because I knew what the life was like, I decided that I was going to give it away. Right. And I did. Right. And, and you fixed on to hairdressing at that point? I fixed on to hairdressing, and then I looked at the point that I wanted a family, I wanted children. Why did you come to Australia? I ended up having two small uh, two small children. Well, the first one that was actually born, we decided that we didn't want to live in England. Part and parcel of that was me living in the Mediterranean. I was now anchoring back for the Mediterranean-style life or a different sort of life. I never really fitted in the English Moldian, even though I speak English, and I'm probably very traditionalist in one side of me. There's another side of me that is not that at all. 
whereabouts in the world are we going to go? And at that particular time in the late 1960s, early 1970s, South Africa was out of the question. Canada was an option, but of course it's too cold for me. And so Australia was the obvious place, and certainly Queensland, because that's the best place in the world to live, isn't it? It seems that way, at least from outside. (laughs) (laughs) So you came here, and you've been here, what, since the early 70s? I've been here for 35 years. Okay, okay. And your wife's no longer with you. That's right. Unfortunately, that was sad. Uh, My wife, when you set about uh, your life, you think that you're going to spend your later years with this partner and it turned out my wife was 11 years older than me Ian. at the time when I got married it wasn't the done thing everybody came I was well known in my hometown probably but from both my dancing career and also for the fact that uh, in late in my hairdressing life as well I was well known in the city and everybody turned out this wedding to see the joke of the year because Bernard was marrying someone 11 years older than him. Certainly not the type of person that they thought that I should marry. But they didn't know that I was marrying the love of my life and continued to be so. And I had 35 years of very happy times. And then unfortunately my wife developed Alzheimer's which was a great blow and it was not very nice because unfortunately uh, she knew she had Alzheimer's, she had the type of Alzheimer's that she was aware of, she had aggressive Alzheimer's and for six years uh, that was, I nursed her the best way that I possibly could until eventually uh, she had to go into care and I had no option. I ended up having a heart attack while she was two weeks after her being in care because of the stress and coping with it. And she decided that she'd no longer wanted to live and she virtually starved herself to death. And she lasted three months. Fortunately, she ended up falling and breaking her hand off her hip and uh, she refused to eat, refused to get out of bed, she refused any physio, she refused absolutely everything. And she had a pulmonary thrombosis and died. And to be quite honest with you, Ian, I'm glad it happened that way because she would have loathed to have been bedridden and living this ridiculous uh, support that the health department give these people that really don't want to be there and of, and of no value. Do you think there's a place for euthanasia? Absolutely. Absolutely. In actual fact, my wife had made out a future health directive when she knew that she was starting to go uh, with Alzheimer's. Uh, you might sort of say, well, if she had Alzheimer's, she wasn't in, uh, in uh, full compre- comprehension of what she was doing, but that isn't true because in the early days... Uh, the little inklings of Alzheimer's were very, very mild and uh, for 90% of the time she was perfectly okay. It was just the slope that eventually uh, 90% of the time she didn't know where she was and 10% she was okay. Mm. And then eventually uh, she wasn't all right at all. So she had a future health directive 
and if she could have actually have had access to euthanasia, I've got no doubt that she would have done that probably a year before she actually died. So do you think, and do you think that she thinks that that last year was intolerable? Absolutely. Absolutely. She had aggressive Alzheimer's. Uh, she lived in absolute turmoil. It was it was really terrible. I would, I would go as far as to say it's probably the worst thing that can actually happen to anybody. And to watch somebody die that is the love of your life turn into somebody that you don't like and you hate the whole thing is also for the carer a very difficult thing to do. You watch that person die in front of you, but they're still there. Uh, but they're not. This it's, is what a lot of people don't talk about. How many people know about the carer's role? You know, we talk about the suffering of the individual who's passing away over this extended time, but very little is talked about the person who cares for them. Well, the carer, unfortunately, particularly, it's a very different for each particular person, Ian, because, for instance, if it's your mother and father, the role that you play of carer is different altogether. When it's your partner, and possibly it can be very different if it's the male, it might be different. The female that has always probably played part of being a carer all, all her life. I mean, we all care for one another, but if you understand what I mean. Mm. For the male, it can, particularly from the era that I come from, can be very difficult. All of a sudden, this man's having to find out, well, I've never cooked, I've got to cook. I've got to clean, I've got to wash. What happens to the sexual side of my marriage? It's still there and it can be horrendous where you've had a sex life uh, that has been very good sex life that all of a sudden turns into something bizarre. There's all sorts of things, Ian, that people don't talk about and where you're at in your life. For me, it was very difficult because my wife, had been sexually abused by her stepfather when she was small, which had never been a problem to her and had never reared its head in the whole of our marriage life. As far as I was concerned, it had never affected her. In the last eight months that my wife was alive, she thought that I was her stepfather. And so consequently... Uh, all the demons came home All the demons roost. came home to roost. Mm. And as a carer in that position, it was very difficult. I can tell you, I used to sleep with one eye open because I didn't know if my wife was going to kill me. Wow. And at one, she had, at one particular stage, taken a carving knife to me. She'd actually belted me and broken my cheekbone. Uh, there was all sorts of things that this person... So this is the person who you both adore, Absolutely. just adore each other, Absolutely. suddenly turns, mm. becomes the antithesis of who she was. Absolutely. Uh, because of an illness. That's right. And, and, and distant demons from her childhood. That's uh, right. And that's, that's why the perpetrator back then yeah, has got something to answer for too. But how do you even process that? How do you, how do you not just want to run or... Absolutely, and it's very difficult, and consequently, I think that that's obviously after my wife had gone into care, how I ended up having the heart attack uh, that I did. I was actually talking to a social worker when it happened, 
So fortunately, I was in the right place. But I think that that was the the stress level, Ian, was astronomical. And this is why a lot of... You had some really bad experiences right at the end of her life there. Yes. But you always, always speak speak of such affection towards her. How do you manage to make sure that that little tiny part of her life is removed from the big picture? Because that seems to be what you do. Am I right? Absolutely, because the point was, Ian, it wasn't her. And that's what I said to you a few minutes ago. Uh, At one particular time, she was 10% Alzheimer and 90% normal. And as as the progression went on, the the role changed. But, you know, the, the cruel part, perhaps, is for the fact that right up until the person is total Alzheimer, every so often that person reappeared. The person that you love, and it might have only been for 30 seconds, Ian, but they reappear. And you hang on to that somewhere along the line. And then eventually it's gone completely. So you go through this grieving. You've gone through a continual grieving process. And I thought that I did quite well with it, but obviously I hadn't. And people around me, I had enormous support group around me. And those people knew eventually that I would drop my bundle. But I managed to hang on to it until she'd gone. And now, in hindsight, that first 12 months after she died, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where I was supposed to be. I didn't know what I was supposed to be thinking And this is a normal process, because even though I'd grieve for her dying, that she was still there with the Alzheimer's, then when she died, it's a whole grieving process again. You think, oh, I've gone through this, but you haven't. I did have to have psychological counselling. I went to counselling of how to try to deal with it, because it was too difficult for me to deal, deal with. And you've rebuilt your life, and you've now got this lovely unit and you know, you're know you moving forward. Why did you come back to tango? Why did you come to tango? Because you didn't go back to ballroom. I went back to tango. So you didn't dance the whole time you were married? No, for correct? 40 years I didn't dance. And only socially, like if you went to a, a bit of a dance that was around, you yeah. jigged around or sure. whatever. My wife wasn't a dancer. so And so that's how it was. Well, when you are in a situation where you have to forge a new life. I think that the that you call on your past. And the obvious place for me to go, to go out in, into the world again, to meet new people and try to find a place, is obviously to go back to dance. And Argentinian tango was always something that fascinated me. It was totally different to anything else completely left of centre and I'd never had time in my life to pursue it and I thought now this is something that I would like to explore something that I'd always wanted to do can I call on my uh, past resources to help me through this and I was fortunate enough to find Sandra and Ross as well you know Mm. are very good at what they do Mm. I found that Nothing in my past dance 
with of any aid and help because the thing is so darn difficult to do. It's, so a, prick of, it's a prick of a dance, isn't it? <laughs> but it's been quite good. But one of the things that... But it, how long have you been dancing? What, six, eight months then? Yes. Yeah, yeah so you know, like you're way ahead of where I was. You know, after only six, eight months. And that's because you do have that background. Yeah, you do have a sense of well, presence and yeah. rhythm and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. And right. also an understanding about what dance is about yeah. and an understanding about what technique is. Even though perhaps I can't do it, but I do understand it and yeah. understand And you just apply, you're learning how to morph your original that's trainings right. into this new dance that's right. And also my past background, Ian, I mean, bear in mind at the level that I was or used to be, I'd been to some of the best teachers in the world, Ian. I'd gone to, for my choreography when I was a uh, in cabaret, I'd gone to the best in the world. And so, I know when a teacher knows what they're talking about. I was about to pick up on that. You would, you would recognise the bluff Absolutely. and you would recognise the quality. Absolutely. And I would have to tell you that Sandra knows exactly what she's doing. Is tango therapy or is tango more about Absolutely. moving on in life? I think it's great therapy for me. Uh, but it, it encompasses all sorts of things, Ian. It isn't just one thing. A, uh, it's therapy for me because it's helped me mo also move into a group of people that know nothing about me. They don't know anything about my past life. Well, this is, <laughs> until today. And, well, this is one of the reasons why I was reluctant, Ian, because uh, there had to be a time for me to, to do that amongst the people that, that I'm now uh, started to mix them amongst. Because one of the things that I've come to realise is when you lose your partner, all your past friends, uh, and I've got a lot of people, friends, they supported me absolutely wholeheartedly. And you hear it many times, people say, oh, but my friends treat me differently. Because I'm on my own, they must be frightened that I'm going to run off with their wife or I'm going to run off with their husband. And I've come to realise, Ian, that this is what my perception is. It's got nothing to do with that. It's because it's you that's changed and you're changing. Because after a period of time, you start to lose part of that person that had become part of you. You're finding who you are yourself. And for you to walk amongst your past people there is always the loss of your partner there. She isn't there. This is where I used to be. I used to be with these people. And you realise that it's not a good place to be in. And you need to move amongst different people that didn't know anything about you and to be able to move on in your life. So in that sense, tango has been therapy for me because I don't take my wife with me. Mm. If you mm. understand, I understand what, I mean. what you mean, and also, and you're also going back to your youth in some respects. When my too. wife wasn't part and parcel of that either. That's right. And yet, well, we all want to go back to our youth, Ian. <laughs> we never want to leave it in well, the first place. And in in four short weeks, we go to uh, Buenos Aires together, we do. don't we? And, we do. And we're going to be doing three weeks of tango over there. So that's a, a whole adventure for both of us. And I'm, that's right. I'm looking forward, to it. and that's one reason why I did this podcast today because I didn't want to get to know you too much more before we get to BA mm. and before I do this recording. So to sum up, you know, you're not a young man, but, you know, you've still got hopefully plenty of good times ahead of you. 
how would you sum up this really quite fascinating life? You know, you've had all this dance background, you've had professional hairdressing in some amazing situations, you've lost a partner. Um, how would you sum up this life and what are you looking forward to in the next little bit? I've had a very, very fulfilled life, Ian. I've been, I consider that I've been very fortunate right up until um, just before my wife died, I'd led a very uh, charmed life. I'd never had anything disastrous happen to me. I'd been certainly been in situations that disaster could have happened. I, uh, something that Mate, you got hit by a bloody bus. I also, <laughs> and also I've been held hostage twice, which is another story. <laughs> God, Bernard. Um, which is another story. You want to fill us in? Yeah, well, I can fill you in. The first time was is rather bizarre. When I was first hairdressing, and I was an apprentice, I worked for a company, a very ordinary hairdressing salon, but very good. They were very, very good hairdressers. And I eventually became known as the prostitutes hairdresser because half of Nottingham City prostitutes used to come to me to get their hair done. One of these prostitutes, I used to go and work for her on a Monday, it was my day off, and I used to arrive very early in the morning, uh, sort of seven o'clock in the morning, because that used to be her busiest time. They'd just drop in for a quickie? Absolutely. <laughs> Goodness. These people, she run a very, very good business in West Bridgeford in Nottingham. This particular day, I used to actually sit with her husband and perhaps play cards. I used to do a hair between each client, because in those days, Hairdressing was very different to what it is today. It was very much all the very bouffant stuff and stuff that was difficult for the person to do themselves. And so I used to spend the whole day, and I used to get five shillings from every time I did a hair, which was between every client. I used to touch this hair up so she looked absolutely terrific. She was a very, very classic prostitute. But I used to sit playing cards with her husband, and I knew that they were from a very... Uh, shall we say, a devious background. And this particular day, there was all of a sudden lots of people in the house. Uh, the business that she was, a very big villa that they, she worked from, with a side entrance to it that customers used to come to. Uh, but the main entrance to the house was around the front of the property. And all of a sudden there were all these people there. And there were all men that came into the lounge and they said to Brian, who was the, the prostitute's husband, who is he? Uh, Brian said, oh, he's only Terry's hairdresser. He's fine. Don't worry about it. And they said, oh, no, he can't leave. So I'm looking at these people and thinking, hmm, that's interesting. That man has got the most fantastic coat on I've ever seen. He had the most beautiful Harris tweed coat on with a beaver lamb fur collar to it that obviously cost an arm and a leg. And he was an interesting man. And I thought, I wonder who he is. Anyway, they said to me, is it possible for you to uh, notify your family that you're away for a couple of weeks? And I said, well, I've got to go to work. And they said, never mind about work. What about your family? And I said, well, I can notify them, sure. And I rang my parents and said, look, I'm going to stay with some friends for a, a few days. Uh, I'll keep you in touch where I am. I mean, we're talking about days when there were no mobile phones or anything yeah, yeah. like that, Ian. That's right. 
And uh, they said to me that what they would do was a minder would take me to work in the morning and he would sit outside the shop all of the day where I worked. And I would have, when I le left in the evening, he would take me back and I would have to stay there. And I was not to talk about anything about what was going on at the time. And I still didn't know what the hell this was all about. But for the best part of two weeks, that's what I had to do. And then all of a sudden, these people disappeared. And it turned out that the person that was wearing the coat was one of the Cray twins. Oh, now, now I don't, you're going to have to explain right. that because I, that does sound vaguely familiar. It probably would because the great Cray twins were two boys and they were the most notorious underworld criminals in London at the time. They ran the whole thing. In actual fact, there's a film about the Cray twins here. And the Cray twins were notorious murderers and into prostitution, drugs, the whole scene. And they'd eventually uh, committed some form of murder uh, that they were looking for them. And these two guys had gone on the run. So they were on the run when and they, they dropped into your world. And they dropped into my world. And they dropped into my world because... Brian, who was uh, one of, uh, uh, was on the payroll of these criminals. Uh, this and is... this was a safe house. It was 120 kilometers out of London. No one knew that there was any connection. And, and they had to hold out for two weeks. That's where this Cray twin was held. And so I was held virtually hostage, if you like. So it's quite interesting. You should look up about the Cray Twins and it would uh, give you some insight into how dangerous it really was. So here you are mixing with the Glitterati Absolutely. in the Mediterranean and the thugs of, <laughs> of um, you know, 60s London. Yeah, that's it. And the next time happened was when I was in Rome. And I was actually living uh, n uh, with a couple. In, I was renting a maids quarters in their unit they didn't have a maid they rented the maids quarters out for to support their income and in the block next door to me there was an american couple lived there who i became quite friendly with and it turned out that he was frank moss and his wife was elaine moss he was a guest professor at rome university and he was doing a very important experiment he was going to be immersing a baker sauce into liquid helium, which I understand theoretically gives off a nuclear bubble. And it had never been seen, and it was a theory. And over the Easter holidays in Rome, they decided to actually do this experiment. And he said to me, would you like to be a witness to the experiment? And the findings are going to be taken to Moscow to some big nuclear uh, convention that was going on. It was in the days when computers took up about five rooms. Mm. And then in one of these rooms, there was this tiny little screen. And we were going to see this nuclear bubble on this screen. Well, it turned out not to be quite so boring because all of a sudden there was this great big fracas going on. Uh, the Faculty of Science was a particular political sect and another political sect decided that they were going to take over the faculty of science for some political issue and they 
came in just like a load of terrorists. And unfortunately, what happened was a boy was knocked over a parapet and he was killed. And his name was Paolo Rossi. The name Rossi, Mr. Red. And the people that actually took us hostage, they eventually became the Red Brigade. And it was named after Paolo Rossi. It had got nothing to do with them being communist. And of course that group uh, did eventually become very active. And they were the people that actually took Morosi uh, hostage and of course killed him. He was the, the Italian Prime Minister. Right. So this was the first time that they'd actually taken people hostage. And we were held hostage for three days. Eventually we were let out. We're talking firearms, the whole shit. Oh, absolutely. You're talking real big stuff. And when we were let out, there was all the television cameras there and the floodlights and it was the police and everything. It was on television. And we came wandering out and I was star performer on this six o'clock news. You were 15 (laughs) 15 minutes of fame. (laughs) That's about it, yeah. So that was another interesting episode in my life. So let's wrap this up. Hmm. You said before that feel blessed absolutely well it's been interesting it's been an interesting I mean I haven't done anything illustrious in my life as far as achievement uh, that other people do but I feel that I've been reasonably blessed to walk amongst the people that I have and but my greatest enjoyment is the people I walk with now so I don't know about looking forward. I don't think forward is where one needs to look. I think one needs to not look the here and now, particularly at my time in life. I think now is important. And let's just see where the next few years take us. Bernard King, thanks for coming on your story. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye. Bye. There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.